welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that you will help us to see the good news that Jesus has for the world and for us in particular. In his name we pray, amen. The American Heritage recently reported a meeting in England in East Anglia of World War II Air Force veterans who gathered to reminisce about their dangerous bombing missions. And the local Britons remember the waves of B-17 flying fortresses, the B-24 liberators, and fighter planes that took off each morning. Always more went out than came back. And each one here was a proxy for those who weren't says John McDonough, who is a veteran. And Dan Coonan remembers, when you're in a plane getting shot at, you become very close to your associates. And when Don McGregor's B-17 was strafed by a Messerschmitt, three of his crew were killed, but he survived. He said, I had such a tremendous sense of guilt over those three guys, it took me 43 years to talk about it. In September 1944, Al Ball was part of a crew that became lost, and he found three of his buddies years later in a cemetery and wondered why he was alive and they were in their graves. And Air Force veteran Roland Weber says, as a POW, I had a lot of time to think about fate. I tried to find the combination of factors that made it favor some and not others. I never found it. The American heritage sums up the feelings of all of these men who survived as veterans by saying many of the men who were here had the disturbing sense that they had lived on time borrowed from the ones who were not. You know, if you survive a war in which your buddies didn't survive, I think you're forced to look at life in a very sober way, aren't you? Unless you're completely hard-hearted. And you ponder these crosses row upon row in the National Cemetery with ever-intruding conviction that you easily could be there too. There's a serious sense of reality that invests all of life with a different color when you have come that close to death. Well, the same feeling is experienced by those who are survivors of an airplane crash. And many who escaped the Holocaust are like the World War II veterans. They feel an indefinable sense of guilt. They, too, should be dead. If they had been in a different seat or flown a different mission or sailed a different ship or stood in the line that went to the gas oven... They would be dead. They don't deserve to live. 
And in some instances, veterans know that someone else deliberately took the bullet that should have been theirs. When these survivors sense that they are living on time borrowed from the, lives of, the lost lives of others, they realize they don't own their life. Every new day becomes an undeserved dividend. Nothing they have done has motivated them to adopt this new attitude toward life. They have simply seen something that others have never seen. If they could articulate their deepest feelings, they would say, I was strafed, I was torpedoed, I was crashed, or was gassed together with my buddies. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. And the life I now live is the life I borrowed from someone else. This was precisely what the Apostle Paul had a gut feeling about after his experience on the Damascus Road. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. And he proclaims, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the life of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2, verse 20. And then he adds forcefully in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all died. The reality that Paul discovered is that Christ died the death that all deserve and which all would have died if he had not died their death instead. He saw himself as the survivor of the greatest death that anyone ever died, the death of the Son of God, in which death he also died as us. He is the Savior of all men, Paul wrote, especially of those who believe. And by his righteousness, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life, he writes in Romans 5.18. It is acquittal and life for all men. Thus it is a legal justification for all men. For he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world, writes the Apostle John. And when the Apostle saw this grand truth, the cobwebs and the fog were blown from their minds. Just to be alive, when you know you should be dead, that is good news aplenty, I'll tell you. But they saw much larger good news inside of this obvious truth. There was a new motivation, which will deliver us from the curse of self-centeredness that poisons our life otherwise. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This should is the motivation of self-giving love, which God has for us. No way is it a works trip. No way. You know, an animal without brains that escapes out of a trap where another one perishes can feel no sense of gratitude, no sense of dedication, although it may indeed enjoy a renewed lease on life. But a human being who is created in the image of God can sense an entire new motivation that is imposed by grace. And he must live henceforth for the one who died his death and rose again. 
this is phenomenal. It completely negates all legalism, hope of reward, and its reverse fear of hell. All of that is transcended as motivations from the moment that this fact of life becomes real to the self-centered sinner who has up to now wallowed in his or her own worldly pride, a new purpose in life takes over, completely new. The previous theme of what can I get out of it for myself becomes instead what can I give for the one who gave his all for me, the affluent, the worldly wise. Take thine ease and be merry. That is the majority of the citizens of the first world in which we live. That can no longer look upon his materialistic treasures as his own hard-earned wealth. He realizes he is no more deserving of what he has than the impoverished souls who are living in cardboard shanties in the third world. The same imponderable fate has blessed him that has blessed the survivor of the Holocaust and our Air Force veterans that we quoted earlier. All are, are well-fed Americans really more righteous than starving family refugees out there in the other part of the world? Maybe our blessings are a consequence of an accident, of living under a constitution given to us by liberty-loving founding fathers, something that we don't deserve, and an advantage others can never know. And maybe uh, prosperous Western Europeans have also inherited some very happy fallout from a Marshall Plan of a previous generation and are no more deserving than are the hungry ones that are left in Eastern Europe. This new motivation of grateful service in response to the cross of Christ is no fanatical goody-goodyism. Newly envisioned people who feel the constraint of Jesus' love still have a sinful nature. They still are tempted, in other words, as anyone else is tempted to indulge the clamors of the ego self. They are alive in every sense of the word, even more sensitive to subtle temptations, to indulgence, than they are often the besotted and the semi-conscious victims of worldliness. Like strings of a finely tuned piano, they are not flabby but taut with a constantly heightened sense of obligation in life, but they make beautiful music and they seek to honor the Christ who saved them. This new life is not a works trip. The first idea of merit being earned, that thought is repulsed immediately by one who appreciates the love of God. The burning vision of the cross of Christ cuts off all thought of reward. And this new new motivation makes service for Christ and others easy and rather than hard. There are many Adventists who scour the Bible and the spirit of prophecy for little snippets that are lifted from their context in a desperate attempt to make it seem that it is awful hard to follow Jesus Christ. And they have not seen the true dimensions of the width and the length and the depth and the height of the love of Christ revealed at his cross. They think that they are forced to disbelieve his good news declaration, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A glance into that open grave 
that is our just dessert renews our gratitude to Jesus, to him for the life that we now have. It makes all of our burdens henceforth to be light. The gospel is not some kind of an instruction manual, do this or do that in order to go to heaven. It is good news of one who took our rightful death and gave us the grace of his life instead. Jesus clearly spoke of current cultural conditions. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, around verse 24 there. And he said this, Many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many, and because iniquity shall abound, the the love, the agape of many shall wax cold. There shall arise false Christs and false prophets. They shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. And an example is the apparent demise of Christianity in Western Europe. Christian conviction there has waxed cold. And during the last decades since World War II, Europe has become the least of any Christian in all of the continents. Yet it was the home at one time of vibrant Christianity from the 16th through to the 19th centuries. And now the grand cathedrals are almost empty on Sunday mornings except for some gawking tourists who marvel at the architecture. Many churches have been deconsecrated, remodeled into stores, business offices, homes, even granaries. Youth living in a post-Christian society in Europe are absorbed in pleasure-seeking and secularism, The fastest-growing religion in Europe now is Islam. Why this phenomenon of dying Christianity? According to the Bible, the problem is not the fall of genuine, true Christianity. It's a result of apostate Christianity. Babylon the Great is fallen. Is fallen. Revelation 18.2. Jesus says something good is coming. The last message from heaven is going to focus on the good news, not the bad news. And you have it here in Matthew 24 and verse 14. This gospel, and that word means good news, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all of the world for a witness unto all nations. Justification by faith will penetrate the fog of a post-Christian mentality. The special message of the gospel in the last day setting of Revelation 14 is the everlasting good news, not bad news. The fall of Babylon will be proclaimed as light that will lighten the earth with glory in Revelation 18, 1-4. And God's true people more numerous than we have assumed, will respond as they hear a voice from heaven. It will say, come out of her, come out of Babylon, my people. If you hear the voice today, respond to it. There are millions of people around the world that are beginning to take another closer look at the cross of Christ. 
The old hymn puts it this way. His cross towers o'er the wrecks of time. Amen. But seldom has it been clearly understood. The terrible events of the dark ages that were done in the name of Christianity, such as the awful crusades perpetrated against Islam, could never have been done in the name of Jesus if those people had understood the cross. Besides wearing it around their necks when they went on those crusades, they didn't understand the cross, did they? And those shameful persecutions of Protestants by Catholics and those that were vice versa, that could never have happened if Catholics and Protestants had understood what happened at the cross the shameful religious strife that has brought sorrow to so many people, and even in our own time, all was a result of a famine of understanding the truth of the cross. And so when Jesus said that just before his second coming, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all of the world for a witness unto all nations, he was talking about a clearer revelation of the truth of the sacrifice of the cross. And we read in Revelation 18 that another angel is to descend from heaven, having great power, and the earth is to be lightened with his glory. And Revelation emphasizes 25 times that the final light that lightens the earth with glory will be the revelation of Christ as the Lamb, the crucified one, the Lamb. And one brief but clear example of how pagan error has crept into the Christian church to becloud the glory of Christ's cross is the doctrine of the natural immortality of the soul. It is a teaching that is not to be found in the Bible. It hides the reality that on his cross, Christ suffered the horror of the second death. But his glorious agape love triumphed over the experience of hell. You see, there is a length and a breadth and a depth and a height of that love that has a far more powerful effect on human hearts than has been seen in our pathetic history of 2,000 years. For Christ to win the final election in his great controversy with the enemy, there must come a clear and powerful demonstration of that same love in human hearts. And it won't be produced by a fear-inducing type of gospel. You better shape up or else you're going to go to that hot place. You know, something youth don't even, aren't even phased by appeals to fear anymore because for them, fear is entertainment. You know that, don't you? Well, they want to go to the scariest movies. They want to go to the scariest rides at Disneyland, correct? So go ahead, scare me. It's entertainment. No one was ever truly motivated by a gospel of fear. So, Jesus has a better idea, the gospel of his self-giving love at the cross. That will move young people's hearts more than anything else. So how can the gospel ever lighten the earth with glory? How can it capture the earth's billions in population? Many maybe are too poor and too hungry, 
even to want to understand it. Others are too wealthy and too pleasure-caring to even love, pleasure-loving to even care about it. And yet God has promised that his gospel is not going to die out with a whimper. Praise God for that. In Matthew 24, 14, Jesus promised this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all of the world for a witness unto all the nations, and then shall the end come. It's not going to go out with a whimper. And he promises in Revelation 18 that the full message of the pure gospel is going to lighten the earth with glory. Ellen White remarks this way in Great Controversy, page 612, in this regard, she says, the honest children of God everywhere will respond. They will sever the bands that have held them. Family connections, church relations are powerless to stay them now. Truth will be more precious than all besides. A large number take their stand upon the Lord's side. Now, Zechariah tells us about that day, too, in the Old Testament. Let me read it to you from Zechariah chapter 8 and verses 22 and 23. He writes, let me, this is from the Living Bible. You'll like this. Living Bible. People will write their friends in other cities. They will say, let's go to Jerusalem. That's a symbol of the church. People are going to write their friends and say, let's go to church. Sleepy Adventists are going to be turned on by the cross and they're going to invite friends like Susan has to come to church and they're going to be baptized. Amen? They're going to get turned on to something they haven't seen before. Let me read this from the Living Bible. People will write their friends in other cities. They'll say, let's go to the church to ask the Lord to bless us. I'm going. Let's go now. And ten men from ten different nations will clutch at the cloak sleeves of one Jew or child of God today and say, please be my friend, for I know that God is with you. That has yet to be fulfilled. You know, that's how to fill this church. If people ever see in this church what a precious pearl that Jesus has for them, they'll start inviting their friends, and this church will be filled, and we'll go to church, two services. <laughs> That's the way it'll happen. You know, you don't have to necessarily go door to door, you know, cold turkey, because you already have a radius of family and friends and workmates that know you as a Christian. Invite them. You might be surprised. If you have a birthday coming up, invite them for your birthday to church. <laughs> You might be surprised what would happen. They come to church for your birthday party. Well, maybe it seems impossible now. With so many people that are absorbed, you know, in their wants and their desires and their work and in their pleasure. But the Lord Jesus Christ has given his blood for the salvation of the world. Satan cannot win the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Revelation pictures Christ as the bleeding Lamb of God who alone of any being in the universe can open the mysterious seven seals of cosmic destiny. That message of the Lamb, the message of the sacrifice of his cross, this is what is going to lighten the earth with glory. Is it lighting up your heart with glory today? Then don't get left behind. 
and don't be ashamed of it. Everybody who believes the Bible teaching of the second coming of Jesus must believe that something great must happen before he can come. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Well, it's commonly misunderstood, or commonly rather understood, that this means huge expenditures of money in public meetings and television presentations and using state-of-the-art electronic faculties, facilities rather, and wonderful work as that is, and it is deserving of our offerings. Uh, Huge public meetings have been held for nearly 200 years, and yet world population grows faster than the combined efforts of all of the Protestant churches to reach the world with the gospel. Could it be that the Bible teaches a more effective method of evangelism, one that we have, in a great degree, overlooked. It could be summed up near the end of Jesus' ministry. And I'll give you time to find it in John chapter 7, verse 37. John chapter 7 and verse 37. Because in that last day, that great day of the feast... Jesus stood and he cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his inmost soul, see that's you, shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. It means that the humblest person who believes in Jesus, even the uneducated, will become a fountain for gardens, a well of living waters, a stream of Lebanon, and consciously, in an unstudied way, he will pour forth ultimately a powerful message. It will be that the love of Christ constraineth us, compels, motivates, empowers, makes effective the agent who cannot help but communicate the message, all with one proviso that he believe in Jesus. You may become a well of living water for someone believing in Jesus. The waters will flow from you. That's exactly what Jesus said here. That's the most effective means of evangelism, according to Jesus. It sounds deceptively simple, For two millennia, people have believed in Jesus, haven't they? And yet, in spite of all of our best efforts, the task gets bigger all of the time. There must be something about what it means to believe in Jesus that we haven't yet grasped. If that well of living water is not flowing out from within our soul as the ultimate evangelism, it's obvious We haven't yet learned to believe in the sense that Jesus meant when he spoke on that last day of the great feast. Could it be that there is a method of evangelism that we have in a great degree overlooked? Truly successful evangelism requires two criteria. First, the propagation 
of an evangelistic message by every method available, including television and state-of-the-art electronic productions. But the message itself must be correct, faithful to the Bible revelation. Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. The power is built in, within the message, the truth of the gospel. It is so dynamic that it is virtually self-propagating. That is, if it is freed from all of the confusion that Babylon's wine produces. Jesus taught, his dictum is very true. He said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Perhaps we haven't realized how true those words are. The Lord said that if we can break through the clouds of confusion from Babylon that has enveloped his cross, we will see great success in genuine, lasting soul winning. Jesus said it this way, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. He promised that. And consistent with that promise is the prophetic account in Revelation 18, the coming time when the earth is to be lightened with the glory of the closing message. It will be specifically free of any confusion from Babylon's righteousness by faith. Revelation 18.3. And once the final message becomes clear, every honest human soul will heed the call to come out of her, my people. It's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation and not the methods that promulgate the gospel. Once the humblest soul grasps what it means, his inmost soul becomes that well of living water, springing up into everlasting life, refreshing all who come near him. And the power won't be in the training of literary institutions That, too, can glorify God, a well-trained instrument. It's easy to say that it will be the Holy Spirit, but that's a cop-out if we forget that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And if we forget that, that truth is the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the truth, the, the spirit of truth, And the Holy Spirit is the truth of the gospel. And that is where the power is, in the truth of the gospel. So what stands in our way? Jesus tells us that our rich and increase with goods evangelism pride. When Christ gave himself as a sacrifice for the world, did he merely aim at saving the world? Did he only intend to save the world? Or did he actually do it? There's a clear focus in answering that question. It makes tremendous difference in our Christian experience. Is our salvation 100% the work of Christ? Or is it 50% our own? And if Christ's sacrifice is only an intention or an aim, then there must be a missing element that completes his work if he only aimed at it. An aim is never sufficient for hitting the mark, is it? 
something must either transform the aim into an actual hit, or there must be an element that nullifies the intention. Either way, according to this view, what Christ accomplished by his sacrifice is only a halfway effort on his part, being only an aim or an intention. And so, if it is not 100% his, he being our Savior, and we have 50% to do, then Jesus is reduced to some kind of a semi-savior, and our own work must fill in the void. And that reduces itself to salvation by faith plus our works idea. That is a very highly popular doctrine that is widely published. But if Paul's gospel is allowed a hearing, Christ's aim and intention were fully realized. He did save the world. He did reverse the condemnation that Adam brought upon the human race. He entered into the stream of fallen humanity, taking upon himself our flesh, our nature. He became the last Adam, firing the first Adam from his job as the head of the human race. He became the new head of the human race. I'm so glad the first Adam was fired. Jesus became the head of the new race, and he took upon himself the iniquity of us all. He died the world's second death, and he finished the work that the Father sent him to do, and the Father fully accepted his accomplishment and hath made us accepted in the Beloved, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. So does that mean that Paul is teaching that everybody's going to be saved. You know, this doctrine of universalism? Absolutely no. It's like Esau of old, who had the birthright in his possession. And then he sold it for a luscious dinner entree. We can give it up. We can abandon it. We can despise it. We can sell what Christ accomplished for us and actually gave to us. And if you're wondering what the Bible means by the word unbelief, that is precisely what it is. Abandoning it, despising it, selling it. That's what unbelief means. Perhaps you think that that switch in your house turns the electricity on. Perhaps that's what you think. You're wrong. Your electricity is turned on at the powerhouse. And it is flooding your house. And the wires that are running all over your house, it is ready to run your stove and your lights and your vacuum cleaner and whatever for 24 hours a day, provided the outage doesn't go out somewhere along the system, which it didn't do a whole lot this last year. Your switch is what turns it off. Your switch in your room is what turns off the power from the powerhouse. Otherwise, your lights, they'd be on all the time, wouldn't they? Yeah. Likewise, your decision to follow Christ is not what turns his salvation on. He has already given you the gift of his salvation. Your salvation is coming from his powerhouse. That's exactly what John 3.16 is saying. 
but it's un- your unbelief that turns the switch off at your house. It's your unbelief that turns the switch off at your house. The message that was sent to us is better good news than we have been in the habit of thinking. I'm absolutely convinced that our salvation is 100% due to God's initiative and not to our initiative whatsoever. But we let him save us by repentance. We stop turning the switch off. We continue in repentance, which is simply a deepening appreciation of the cross of Christ. It humbles the soul to appreciate the cross. It brings a sorrow for sin and permission for the Lord Jesus to crucify self with him. And I leave you with this good news statement from Ellen White in The Desire of Ages, page 403. The blessings of salvation are for every soul. Nothing but his own choice can prevent any man from becoming a partaker of the promise in Christ by the gospel. That's the powerhouse light switch concept. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.